During this last lecture of the series, I propose to say, however rash it may seem, what it is that the heart of Romanticism appears to me to be. I should like to go back again to a theme which I spoke of in the first and second lectures on this topic, namely the old tradition which is at the heart of all Western thought for at least 2,000 years and more before the middle of the 18th century. That particular attitude, those particular beliefs, which it appears to me Romanticism attacked and gravely damaged, namely the old proposition that virtue is knowledge, a proposition which is, was enunciated, I suppose, for the first time explicitly by Socrates in the pages of Plato and which is common to him and to the Christian tradition. What kind of knowledge one may disagree about. One, there are battles between one philosopher and another, one religion and another, one scientist and another, between religion and science, between religion and art, between every kind of attitude and every kind of school of thought and every other. But the battle is invariably about what is that true knowledge of reality, the possession of which makes it possible for men to know what to do, how to fit in, the proposition that there is a nature of things such that if you know this nature and know yourself in relation to this nature, and if there is a divinity, if you know this divinity and understand the relationships between everything that composes the universe, then your goals, as well as the facts about yourself, must become clear to you and you understand what it is that you should do if you are to fulfill yourself in the manner in which your nature cries out for. And for this it is necessary to know whether the knowledge is a knowledge of physics or psychology or theology or some intuitive kind of knowledge, individual or public, whether it is confined to experts or maybe known by every man, about all these things, disagreement may occur. But that there is such a knowledge, that is the foundation of the entire Western tradition, which, as I say, Romanticism attacked. This is the view of the jigsaw puzzle of which we must fit in the fragments. That is the view of the secret treasure which we must seek. The essence of this view is there is a body of facts to which we must submit. Science is submission. Science is being guided by the nature of things. Scrupulous regard for what there is. Non-deviation from the nature of things. Understanding, knowledge, adap adaptation. The opposite of this, which is, I think, what the Romantic movement proclaimed, may be summarized under two heads. One, which will be familiar to you from these lectures, is the notion of the indomitable will. Not knowledge of values, but that creation is what men do. You create values, you create goals, you create ends, and in the end, you create your own vision of the universe, exactly as artists create works of art. And before the artist has created work of art, it doesn't exist. It isn't anywhere. There is no copying, there is no adaptation, there is no learning of the rules, there is no external check, so to speak, there is no structure which you must understand and adapt yourself to before you can proceed. The heart of the entire process is invention, creation, making out of literally nothing or out of any materials that may be to hand. And the most central aspect of this view is, of course, that your universe is as you choose to make it, to some degree at any rate. That is the philosophy of Fichte, that is to some extent the philosophy of Schelling, that is the insight indeed in our own day, even of such psychologists as Freud, who maintain that the universe of people um, um, possessed by one set of will illusions or possessed by another set of fantasies, it will be different from those possessed by another. 
The second proposition is that there is no, and it really is in some sense connected with the first, is that there is no structure of things. There is no pattern to which we must adapt ourselves. There is only, if not the flow, the endless self-creativity of the universe. The universe must be conceived of not as a set of facts, not as a pattern of events, not as a collection of lumps in space, three-dimensional entities bound together by certain unbreakable relations, as, for example, taught to us by, say, physics, chemistry, and the other natural sciences. The universe is a process of perpetual forward self-thrusting, perpetual self-creation, which can either be conceived of as hostile to man, as, say, by Schopenhauer, or even to some extent by Nietzsche, which will overthrow all human efforts to trick it, to organize it, to f feel at home in it, to, to make oneself a, some kind of cozy pattern in which one can rest. Either that, or friendly, because you can, by identifying yourself with it, by creating with it, by throwing yourself into this great process, indeed by discovering in yourself those very creative forces which you also discover outside, by identifying, on the one hand, spirit, on the other hand, matter, by seeing the whole thing as a vast self-organizing and self-creative process, by doing this, you will at, at last be free. Understanding is not the proper term to use, because understanding throughout presupposes the understander and the understood, the knower and the known, some kind of gap between the subject and the object. But here, there is no object. There is only the subject, in some sense, create, thrusting itself forward. The subject may be the universe, the subject may be the individual, the subject may be the class, the nation, the church, Whatever may be, is identified as the truest reality, so to speak, in, um, of, of which the universe consists. But in any case, it is, as I say, a process of perpetual forward creation. And all schemas, all generalizations, all patterns put upon it are forms of distortion, are forms of breaking. When Wordsworth said that to dissect is to murder, this is approximately what he meant. And he was much the mildest of those who expressed this particular point of view. To ignore this, to evade it, to attempt to see these things as, in some sense, submissive to some kind of intellectualization, some sort of plan, that to attempt to draw up a set of rules or a set of laws or a formula and so forth is a form of self-indulgence or, and in the end, suicidal stupidity. That, at any rate, is the sermon of the Romantics. Wherever you try and understand anything by whatever powers you have, you will discover, as I tried to say last time, you will discover that what you are pursuing to, what you are pursuing is inexhaustible, that you are trying to catch the uncatchable, that you are trying to apply a formula to something which evades your formula, because wherever you try and nail it down, new abysses open, and these abysses open to yet other abysses. The only persons who have ever made sense of reality are those who understand that to try and circumscribe these things, to try and nail them down, to try and describe them, no matter how scrupulously, is a vain task. And this will be true not only of science, which of course does this by means of the most rigorous generalizations of to the romantics, the most external and empty kind, but even those scrupulous writers, those scrupulous describers of experience, realists, naturalists, those who, those who belong to the school of um, the flow of consciousness, Proust, Tolstoy, the most gifted diviners of every movement of the human spirit, even those to the extent to which they commit themselves to some kind of objective description, whether by external inspection or the most subtle introspection, the most subtle insight into the inner movements of the spirit, so long as they labor under the illusion that it is possible once and for all to write down, to describe, to give any finality 
to the process, which they are trying to catch, which they are trying to nail down, so long as this goes on, unreditable result, fantasy will result. Some attempt always to cage the uncageable, so to speak. Some attempt always to pursue some kind of truth where there is no truth, to try and stop the unceasing flow, to catch movement by means of rest, to catch time by means of space, to catch light by means of darkness. That is the romantic sermon. And when they ask themselves how then one could begin to understand reality in some sense of the word understanding, how one might obtain some kind of insight into this without positively distinguishing oneself on the one hand as a subject and distinguishing it as an object without in the process killing it. The answer which they sought to give, at least some of them, was that the only way of doing this was by means of myths, by means of these symbols which I tried to speak last time, because myths embody within themselves something inarticulable and also somehow managed to encapsulate the dark, the irrational, the inexpressible, that which in some way conveys the deep darkness of this whole process by images which themselves carry you to further images and which themselves point in some infinite direction. That is, at any rate, what the Germans, who I think are responsible for the, this, this whole outlook in the end, uh, preached. The Greeks, for them, understood life because Apollo and Dionysus were symbols, they were myths, who at one and the same time conveyed certain properties, and yet if you ask yourself what it is that Apollo stands for, what it is that Dionysus wants, the attempt to spell this out in a finite number of words, or even paint a finite number of pictures, was plainly an absurdity. And therefore, in some sense, myths are at one and the same time images which the mind can contemplate in relative tranquility, and yet also something which is everlasting, follows each generation, transforms itself in the transformation of men, and is it's in some sense an inexhaustible supply of the relevant images which are at once static and eternal. But these images, the Greek images, are dead for us, for we are not Greeks. That much harder taught them. The notion of returning to Dionysus or returning to Odin is absurd. Therefore we must have modern myths. And since there are no modern myths, because science has killed them, or at any rate has made the atmosphere unpropitious to them, we must create them. And so there is a conscious process of myth-making. And we get, in the early 19th century, all this conscientious and painful effort to construct myths, perhaps not so painful, perhaps some of it could be described as spontaneous, the effort to construct myths which shall serve us in the way in which the old myths served the Greeks. The roots of life are lost in darkness, said um, Wilhelm Schlegel. Um, the magic of life rests on insoluble mystery, and this is what the myths must somehow incorporate. The romantic art, said his brother Friedrich, is a perpetual becoming without ever attaining of perfection. Nothing can plumb its depths. It alone is infinite, alone free. Its first law is the, will of the is the will of the creator. The will of the creator that knows no law. All art is an attempt to evoke by symbols the inexpressible vision of the unceasing activity, which is life. This is what I have attempted to convey. Now, that is how Hamlet, for example, becomes a myth. That is how Don Quixote becomes a myth. That is how Faust becomes a myth. What Shakespeare would have said about the extraordinary literature which has accumulated around Hamlet. What Cervantes would have said about the extraordinary um, adventures which Don Quixote has had from the early 19th century onwards, I don't know. But at any rate, these things were converted into rich sources of mythology, and if there are inventors knew nothing about it, so much the better. The assumption was the author cannot know what dark depths he plumbs. Mozart cannot tell what genius it is that inspires him. Indeed, so far as he can tell, his genius probably to that extent dries up. And that, I think, if you wish 
for, for a very vivid illustration of the mismaking capacity of the early 19th century, which is really the heart of the Romantic movement, the attempt to break reality into fragments, to get away from uh, the structure of things, uh, to say the unsayable and so on, the history of the opera Don Giovanni, of Mozart's Don Giovanni, is quite an apt illustration. As everyone who has heard it knows, the opera ends, or almost ends, with the destruction of Don Giovanni by the infernal forces, after he fails to reform, after he fails to repent, thunder is heard and he is swallowed up by the forces of hell. At the end of which, after he has been swallowed up and the smoke on the stage is cleared, there is a success on the part of the remaining characters in the drama, who then think a, a, a very pretty little sextet about um, how splendid it is that Don Giovanni has been destroyed while they are alive and happy and propose to seek a perfectly peaceful and contented and ordinary life, each in his own fashion. Mazzetto is going to marry Zerlina, Elvira will go back to her convent, Leporello will find a new master, Ottavio will marry Don Anna, and so on. In the 19th century, this perfectly harmless sextet, was one of the most charming of Mozart's pieces, was regarded by the public as blasphemous and was therefore never performed. It was first reintroduced into the European repertory, so far as I know, by Mahler towards the end of the 19th or beginning of the 20th century and is now regularly played. The reason is this. Here is this vast and dominating, sinister, symbolic figure, Don Giovanni, who stands, we, don't, we know not for what, but certainly for something inexpressible. He stands perhaps for art as against life. He stands perhaps for some principle of inexhaustible evil against some kind of philistine good. He stands for power, he stands for magic, he stands for some kind of infernal forces of a superhuman kind. And the, tragedy, the, the opera ends with an enormous climax in which one infernal force is swallowed by another, and this vast melodrama rises to a volcanic climax which is meant to cow the audience and show them amidst what and, 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 and unstable and what a terrifying world they live. And then suddenly, this Philistine little piece, this sextet which follows, in which the characters simply peacefully think about the fact that uh, a rake has been punished and good men will continue their lives, their ordinary, perfectly peaceful lives thereafter. This was regarded as inartistic, shallow, pathetic, and disgusting, and therefore eliminated. Now, this elevation of Don Giovanni into a vast myth which dominates over us, which must somehow be interpreted in a way um, to convey some kind of the profoundest and the most inexpressible aspects of the terrifying nature of reality was certainly very far from the thoughts of the librettist, and probably very far from the thoughts of Mozart. The librettist, Lorenzo da Ponte, who started life um, as, as, as a converted Jew in Venice and ended it, I think, as a music teacher in Philadelphia, was certainly very remote from any sort of placing upon the stage one of the great, one of the vast symbols of spiritual existence on earth. But in the 19th century, this was the attitude taken towards Don Giovanni, and he continued to haunt the minds of the 19th century. He haunted Kierkegaard's mind to a very profound degree, and he haunted the minds of the 19th century, and, and indeed does so to the present, until the present day. This is a very, very typical example of the total reversal of values, of the complete transformation of something which started off by being dry, classical, symmetrical, and in every respect in accordance with the conventions of the age into something which bursts its frame and suddenly begins to spread its wings in the most unaccustomed and, 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 and fearful fashion. The, this particular view of, so to speak, of, of, of great images dominating mankind, of, of dark forces, the unconscious, and the importance of the inexpressible, and the necessity of discounting it and allowing for it, spreads into every sphere of human activity. It's by no means confined to art. It certainly enters into other spheres. It enters, for example, into politics. 
First, in a mild way, in Burke's great images of the society, great society of the dead and the living, and those not yet born, bound together by myriad in, in, unanalyzable strands to which we are loyal, so that every attempt to try and rationally analyze it, say, as a social contract, or say, as some kind of utilitarian arrangement for the purpose of living a happier life, or preventing collisions with human beings, every such attempt is shallow and betrays the inner, the inexpressible spirit which dominates any human association, which carries it forward, loyalty to which, spiritual immersion in which, is at the very heart of true, genuine, deep, devoted human life. Then, Müller, who was a German disciple of Burke, um, it really reaches its most eloquent form. Let me read it to you. Science, says Müller, can only reproduce a lifeless state. By state, he means a political state. Death cannot represent life. Nor can stagnation, that is the social contract, the liberal state, is what he means, the English state in particular, nor stagnation movement. Science, utilitarianism, the use of machinery, that does not convey the state. That conveys a mere factory, an insurance company, a mercantile society, not the intimate association of every physical and spiritual need, of the whole of the physical and spiritual wealth of the totality of the internal and external life of a people into a great, energetic, infinitely active and living whole. These mystical words then become uh, the heart and center of the whole organic theory of political life and of loyalty to the state, and of the state as a, semi as a spiritual organization, which in a sense is symbolic of the spiritual powers of divine mystery which is very nearly what the state among the Romantics, at least the extreme Romantics, undoubtedly becomes. It enters the sphere of law in the German school of historical jurisprudence. The notion that true law is not that which a given person, say a king or say an assembly, happens to pass, which is simply an empirical event guided perhaps by utilitarian or other contemptible considerations. It isn't that, nor is it something eternal, those laws of nature those divine laws which any rational soul can discover for itself as thought, say, by the Roman Church, or as thought, say, by the Stoics, or as thought, say, by the 18th century French philosophers. They may have disagreed about what these laws were or how to discover them, but they all agreed that there were certain eternal, immutable principles along which human life had to be founded, uh, adherence to which made men moral, made men just, and made men good. This is denied. Law is the product of the beating force within the nation, of dark traditional forces, of its organic sap which flows through its body like a tree, of something which we cannot identify and cannot analyze, but which everyone who is true to his country feels coursing through his veins. Therefore, law is a traditional growth. Law is something which is partly circumstances, but partly the inner soul of the nation, now beginning to be conceived as almost individual. That which between them they in some sense generate. And therefore, true law is traditional law. Every nation has its own law. Every nation has its own shape. And this shape goes far into the misty past. And its roots are somewhere in the darkness. And unless its roots are in the darkness, it is too easily overthrown. De Maistre, who was a reactionary French Catholic philosopher, who I think only half believed in this organic view of life, inasmuch as theoretically at least, he, had to do, he, 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 was, he was adherent of Thomism. De Maistre says, anything which man can make, man can mar. 
Anything which man can create, man can destroy. Therefore, the only thing which is eternal is this mysterious, frightening process which goes on far below the level of consciousness. This is what creates traditions. This is what creates states, nations, constitutions. Anything written, anything articulated, anything arrived at by sensible men in a cool hour is a thin, superficial thing likely to collapse when other equally sane and equally superficial and equally reasonable men uh, refute it. And this, therefore, has no true basis in reality. This is also true of historical theory, certainly, on the part of the great uh, German historical school, which again tries to trace historical evolution out of unconscious dark factors um, inter interweaving with each other in all kinds of inexplicable ways. There is even such a thing as romantic economics, in the form, for example, of the economics of men like Fichte and of Liszt, particularly in Germany, who believed in the necessity of, say, creating an isolated state, an isolated state in which the true spiritual force of the nation can exercise, exercise itself without being buffeted by other nations. That is to say, where the purpose of the economics, the purpose of money, the purpose of trade, is towards the spiritual self-perfection of man and does not obey so-called um, unbreakable laws of economics, which even people like Burke believed. Burke believed, said indeed, that the laws of commerce um, are the laws of nature and therefore the laws of God and deduced from this that nothing could be done about passing any radical reform and the poor would have to starve. This is approximately the consequence of this. This was, as you know, um, one of the um, consequences which led, which, which led the laissez-faire school of economics into a certain amount of justif justified disrepute. The romantic um, economics is the precise opposite of this. All economic institutions must be bent towards some kind of ideal of living together in a spiritually progressive manner. And above all, you mustn't make the mistake of supposing that there are external laws, that there are some kind of objective given laws of economics which in some way are beyond human control. This is a typical return to the rerum natura. This means once again you believe in a structure of things which can be studied, which sits still while you look at it and describe it. And this is false. Any such assumption that there are objective laws is simply a human fantasy, a human invention, an attempt on the part of human beings to justify their conduct, and particularly their disreputable conduct, by calling into being, by placing the responsibility upon the shoulders of imaginary external laws, such as the laws of supply and demand, or any other kind of external laws, this law of politics, that law of economics, which is alleged to be unalterable, and which therefore in some way not only explains, but justifies the poverty, squalor, and other un unattractive social phenomena. The romantics in this respect could be either progressive or reactionary. In what might be called revolutionary states, radical states, created after the French Revolution, they were reactionary, they called back for some kind of medieval darkness. In reactionary states, say Prussia after 1812, they became progressive inasmuch as they regarded this artificial creation of the King of Prussia as a suffocating artificial mechanism which stifled the natural organic thrust of the life of the human beings imprisoned by it. So it could take either form. That is why we get revolutionary romantics and reactionary romantics. That, why, that is why it's impossible to pin romanticism down to any given political view, however often this has been tried. This, I think, is the fundamental, I think. Those are the fundamental um, bases of romanticism. Will and the emptiness, so to speak, of outer space. The fact that there is no structure to things, that you can really mold these things as you will, they only come into being as a result of your molding activity. And therefore, 
opposition to any view which tried to represent reality as having some kind of form which could be studied, written down, learnt, communicated to others, and in other respects treated in a scientific manner. There is no province in which I think this particular attitude is more evident than the field of music about which I have not yet spoken. It's uh, interesting and indeed even amusing to watch the development of attitudes towards music from the beginning of the 18th to roughly speaking the middle of the 19th century. In the 18th century, particularly in France, music is regarded as on the whole a fairly inferior art. Vocal music has its place because it heightens the importance of the words. Religious music has its place because it contributes to the mood which religion is meant to induce. But uh, it is clear, for example, Durfey, towards the end of the 17th century, says that it is obvious that the um, visual art is far more sensitive to the spiritual life of man than, for example, the ear. Fontenelle, who was the most civilized man of his time, and indeed of most times, said when instrumental music first began to invade France, and sonatas began to appear as against the kind of vocal religious music or operatic music to which he was used, which had a plot, which had explanation, which had some kind of extra musical importance. When sonatas appeared, he said, Sonat, que me veux-tu? Sonata, what do you want of me? And condemned instrumental music as a meaningless pattern of sounds, not really suitable for delicate or civilized ears. The, perhaps this is, this is a fairly common attitude in France, in the middle, certainly in the middle of the 18th century. It, it comes out with particular vividness in the verses addressed by the essayist and dramatist Marmontel in the 70s um, to uh, the composer Gluck, who at this period conquered the Paris stage. Gluck, as everyone knows, reformed music by placing music above the words and by forcing the words, so to speak, into some conformity with the true emotion and drama which he wished to convey by means of the music. He didn't, um, he, the great musical reform of no longer using music as a mere accompaniment to the meaning of the actual dramatic words. This outraged Marmontel, who supposed drama and who supposed all art to have some kind of mimetic quality, that is to say, imitation of life, imitation of the ideals of life, imitation of imaginary beings, ideal beings, not necessarily real beings, but still some kind of imitation, some kind of relationship to actual events, actual persons, actual emotions, something which was there in reality, which was the business of the artist, if necessary to idealize, but at any rate to represent as it truly is. And music, which had no meaning by itself, which was simply a succession of sounds, was clearly non-mimetic. Everybody saw that. Words had something to do with words spoken in ordinary life. Paints had something to do with colors perceived in nature. But sounds were very dissimilar to the sounds heard in rustling forests or to, or, to, or to bird song. The kind of sounds which musicians used were clearly much remoter from any kind of ordinary human experience than were the materials used by other artists. Hence, he attacked Gluck in the following words. Let me give you the English version first, then I shall read the French. He has arrived, this mountebank from Bohemia. He has arrived preceded by his reputation. Upon the ruins of a superb poem, he makes Achilles and Agamemnon howl. He makes Queen Clytemnestra scream. He makes the indefatigable, indefatigable orchestra snore. Il arriva, ce jongleur de Bohème, il arriva, précédé de son nom. Sur le débris d'un superbe poème, il fit beugler Achille Agamemnon. Il fit hurler la reine Clytemnestra. Il fit ronfler l'infatigable orchestre. This is a very typical um, attack of its time, it being by no means uncharacteristic. This is approximately the attitude of those who didn't wish to give up association with nature or the idea of imitation to this peculiar notion of mere expression of the inner soul. 
This is Thomas Fontaine writing in 1785. For him, the only purpose of music is to evoke certain emotions. Unless it evokes some kind of emotions which are already there, unless it is reminiscent of something, unless it is in some sense associated with experience of some kind, it has no value. Certainly sound as such express nothing and need never be employed in this particular way. Madame de Stahl, very typically, already in the beginning of the 19th century, speaking about music which she, of which she alleged herself to be extremely fond, said something of this sort. The value of music lies in the following. What man, she says, exhausted by a life of passion, can listen with indifference to the tunes of his tranquil youth? What woman, whose beauty time has at last ravaged, can hear without emotion the song that her lover once sang? Well, no doubt this is true, but this is a, a, very, a, very, a very different type of approach to music from that which was already being expressed by the Romantic Germans of this particular period. Even Stendhal, who liked Rossini with an almost physical passion, says about the music of Beethoven that he detests these combinations um, he detests the combinations of this learned and almost mathematical harmony. Rather, the sort of thing which people nowadays might be inclined to say about, say, Schoenberg. This is very different from Wackenroda, who wrote in 1795, Music shows us all the movements of our spirit, disembodied. Or of Schopenhauer, who says, The musician reveals to us the intimate essence of the world. He is the interpreter of the profoundest wisdom, speaking a language which reason cannot understand. Neither reason nor indeed anything else they speak. That was Schopenhauer's point. Because, in some sense, this music was the expression of the naked will of that internal energy which moves the world, of that inexpressible inner drive or will which, in fact, is the essence for him of reality and which all other arts, to some extent, try to tame, order, arrange, organize, and to that extent, cut into, distort, and kill. And this, of course, is also the view of Tieck and of Schlegel and of all the Romantics, who indeed some of them are very fond of music. And there are, there are essays by Hoffmann, not only remarkable essays on Beethoven, remarkable essays on Mozart, but also remarkable essays on the actual significance and cosmic, metaphysical significance, let us say, of the tonic and the fifth, which are described as vast giants in glittering arms. He also has a little essay on the true significance of, for example, the chord of A-flat minor, which is a very unlikely thing at that period to have been written about by any member of any other European nation. This, then, is, so to speak, the attitude towards music, which is abstract, detached from life, direct expression, non-mimetic, non-imitative, and at the furthest possible end to any kind of objective description of anything. Nevertheless, of course, they didn't think that the arts ought to be unbridled, that one should simply sing whatever comes to one's head, paint whatever the mood charges one to paint, or give absolutely um, un, uh, completely undisciplined um, expression to the emotions. They were they've been charged with this by Professor Irving Dabbitt and others, but mistakenly. Um, Schlegel says very clearly, when, when, no, Navalis, I'm sorry, says very clearly, when storms rage in a poet's breast and he is bewildered and confused, gibberish results. A poet must not wander idly all day in search of feelings and images. He must certainly he must have these feelings and images. Certainly he must plainly um, allow these storms to rage. For how indeed can, can, can he avoid it? But then he must discipline it. Then he must find the proper medium for that expression. Schubert said that the mark of a great composer is to be caught in a vast battle of inspiration in which the forces rage in the most uncontrolled way, and then to keep one's head in the course of the storm and direct the troops. This is a far, quite clearly, a far more uh, genuine expression of what artists do uh, than uh, the remarks of the more unbridled romantics 
who I think were unaware of the nature of art in as much as they were not artists themselves. Who were these persons who so celebrated the will, who so hated the fixed nature of reality, and who believed in these storms and these untamable, these unbridgeable abysses and these unorganizable streams? It's very difficult to give any sociological explanation, although it ought to be done, for the rise of the Romantic movement. The only explanation that I've ever been able to discover is by looking at who these persons were, particularly in Germany, and the truth, of course, is that they were a remarkably unworldly body of men. They were poor, they were timid, they were bookish, they were very awkward in society. They were easily snubbed. They had to serve as tutors to great men. They were constantly full of insult and oppression. It's clear that in some sense they were confined and contracted in their universe. They were like Diderot's description of the bent twig, which always, always jumped back and hit its bender, so to speak. And that is, I think, what is on the whole true of these Germans. There was something, perhaps, about Prussia, where most of them came from, about this excessively paternalistic state of Frederick the Great, about the fact that he was a mercantilist and therefore increased the wealth of Prussia, increased her army, made her most powerful and rich of all the German states, but at the same time pauperized her, uh, her peasants and did not allow sufficient opportunity to most of our citizens. It is true, too, that these men, most of them, children of clergymen and of civil servants and the like, received education which made of them, uh, gave them certain intellectual and emotional ambitions, which, in view of the fact that too many jobs were perhaps held by persons of good birth in Prussia, where social distinctions were preserved in the most rigorous manner, because they weren't able to obtain full expression of their ambitions, did perhaps become somewhat frustrated and began to breed fantasies of every possible kind. There is something in that. At any rate, it seems to me to be a more reasonable explanation that this should have been the case, that men of a humiliated kind, excited perhaps by the French Revolution and by the general overtime of events, should have given rise to this, than the theory of Monsieur Hautecoeur, who thinks that the movement really began in France among ladies, and is really due to um, the effect upon the nerves of the consumption of too much tea and coffee, of corsets which were too tight, of cosmetics which were poisonous, and of other means of self-beautification which had um, physically deleterious results. This doesn't appear to me on the whole a theory which is worth pursuing very much further. <laughs> at any rate, at any rate the, the, the movement rose in Germany, it arose in Germany, and there it found its truest home, but it travelled. It travelled certainly beyond the confines of Germany. It travelled to every country where there was some kind of social discontent and dissatisfaction, particularly to countries oppressed by small elites of brutal or oppressive or inefficient men, particularly in Eastern Europe, and it found its home, it's, it, perhaps it found its, its, its most passionate expression of all, in, of all countries, England, where Byron certainly was the leader of the entire Romantic movement in the sense that Byronism became almost synonymous with Romanticism in the early 19th century. Where Byron, so to speak, how Byron became a Romantic is too long a story, which I don't think I can, tell, I can even attempt to tell, even if I knew it. But there is no doubt that he is a person perhaps best described by Chateaubriand, who said, the ancients scarcely knew the secret anxiety, the bitterness of strangled passions, all fermenting uselessly. A large political life, games in the gymnasium or on the field of Mars, the business of the forum, public business filled our time and left no place for the boiling and destructive ennui of the heart. That, I think, is certainly Byron's condition. And I think Chateaubriand, who was only perhaps half a romantic, only a romantic in the sense that he was subjective and introspective and tried to make a kind of 
vague myth out of Christian values to replace the no longer available myths of the ancient world of the Middle Ages, which Chateaubriand seems to me to have described accurately. Chateaubriand is half respectful and half ironical towards this movement. Perhaps the best expression of it, it was given by a little French jingle, which I shall now read to you, written by an anonymous poet at the beginning of the 19th century. L'obéissance est douce au vil cœur du classique. Ils ont toujours quelqu'un pour modèle et pour loi. Un artiste ne doit, ne doit écouter que son moi, et l'orgueil seul emplit les âmes romantiques. Obedience is sweet to the vile heart of the classic. They always have someone as a model or as a law. An artist must only listen to his own self, and pride alone fills romantic hearts. This is certainly the position of Byron in the emotional and indeed political world of the 19th century. The Byron's chief emphasis is upon the indomitable will. And the whole philosophy of voluntarism, the whole philosophy of the fact that there is a world which must be subdued and subjugated by superior persons really takes its rise from him. So the French romantics, from Hugo onwards, are really, in a certain sense, disciples of Byron. Byron and Goethe are the great names. But Goethe was a very ambiguous romantic. And although in Faust he created somebody who keeps saying, forward, forward, never stop, never cease, never ask the moment to wait, over murder, over crime, over every conceivable obstacle, the romantic spirit must forge its way. Although Goethe said that, his later works and his life belied it. Byron acted his beliefs in the most convincing fashion. Let me read you typical lines of Byron which really entered into European consciousness and in a certain sense infected the entire romantic movement. Apart he stalked in joyless reverie, with pleasure drugged he almost longed for woe, and eon for change of scene, and eon the shades, the shades by which he means death. There was in him a vital scorn of all, he stood a stranger in this breathing world. This is a typical note of the outcast, the exile, the Superman, the man who cannot put up with the existing world because his soul is too large to contain it, because he has ideals which in some sense presuppose the necessity of perpetual fervent movement forward, which is constantly confined by the stupidity, the unimaginativeness, and the flatness of the existing world. Therefore, the career, you, it, it, the, the lives of Byronic, the Byronic figures begin in scorn, pass into vice, from there to crime, to terror, and to despair. That is an ordinary career of all these Jauas and Laras and Cains who fill his poetry. So much he soared beyond or sunk beneath the men with whom he felt condemned to breathe. My spirit walked not with the souls of men, this is Manfred, nor looked upon the earth with human eyes. The thirst of their ambition was not mine. The aim of their existence was not mine. My joys, my griefs, my passions and my powers made me a stranger. Now, the whole of the Byronic syndrome, so to speak, consists in adhesion to these two propositions, or rather two values, which I tried to expound. One of which is the will, and the other of which is the absence of a structure of the world to which one must, in some sense, make one adjust oneself. And from Byron it passes to others. From Byron it passes to Lamartine, to Victor Hugo, to the French romantic, to Nodier, to the French romantics in general, from them it goes further to Schopenhauer, who sees man as being tossed in a kind of frail bark upon a vast ocean of the will, which has no purpose, which has no end, which has no direction, which man can only resist at his own peril, but with which man can come to terms only 
if he somehow manages to rid himself of this unnecessary desire to order, unnecessary desire to tidy himself up, unnecessary desire to create a cozy home for himself in this wild and unpredictable element. That is the only way in which he can do it. From Schopenhauer it goes to Wagner, who again, whose whole sermon in the ring, for example, is the appalling nature of unsatisfiable desire, which must lead to the most fearful suffering and ultimately to the immolation in the most violent fashion of all those who are possessed by a desire which they can at one and the same time neither avoid nor satisfy, and the result of which must be some kind of ultimate extinction Ultimate, the waters of the Rhine rise and cover this violence, this chaotic, this unstoppable, this incurable disease from which all mortal, by which all mortals are affected. That, I think, is the heart of the Romantic movement in Europe. Now, let me go back now and consider, again, um, what the position is with regard to that long catalogue which I attempted to read during the first of these lectures, in the course of which I tried to show that Romanticism appeared on the surface to say everything and its opposite. It appears to me that if I am right at all, then perhaps it is possible to maintain that these two principles, the necessity of the will and the absence of a structure of things, may satisfy most of these criteria, and that the contradictions which appeared so stringent then are not perhaps quite so violent as they may seem to appear. To begin with, if you begin, for example, with the notion of the fact that it's what, about which Professor um, Lovejoy complains so bitterly. How can it be that the word Romanticism stands at one and the same time for two such contradictory things as, on the one hand, noble savages, primitivism, the simple life, rosy-cheeked peasants, away from the frightful sophistication of the cities and towards smiling uh, prairies of, 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 of then the United States, um, or some other simple form of life in some existent or non-existent part of the globe. On the one hand that, and on the other hand, blue wigs, green hair, upset, and um, Gerard de Nerval uh, pulling his lobster along the streets of Paris in order to attract some degree of attention to himself, which indeed he succeeded in doing. The... If you ask what is common to these two, and Professor Lovejoy quite naturally expresses certain surprise that the same word should be comfortably used for both, what is common to them both is that they both wish to break up the nature of the given. In the 18th century you have a sophisticated form of life, you have extreme, an extreme order of sophistication, you have forms, you have rules, you have laws, you have etiquette, you have an extremely tight and well-organized form of life, whether in the arts or in politics or in any other sphere. Anything which destroys this, anything which blows it up, is welcome. And therefore, whether you go to the Isle of the Blessed, whether you go to the noble Indians, whether you go to uh, the simple uncorrupted heart of the simple man as sung by Rousseau, on the one hand, or whether you go to green wigs and blue waistcoats and men of wild uh, distempers and of people with the most extreme sophistication and savage bohemianism of life, whichever of these you go to, at any rate, both these are methods of blowing up the given of shattering that which is given. Just as in Hoffman, the fact that brass knockers become old women, or old women become city councillors, or city councillors become bowls of punch, is not simply meant to titillate your feelings, not simply meant to be a slightly fantastic kind of story which, which gives pleasure and is immediately forgotten. Just as even in Gogol's famous story, The Nose, the fact that a nose detaches itself from the face of a minor civil servant and then has romantic adventures of a very violent kind in a top hat and a great coat, is not merely meant to be a rather peculiar story, but is somehow meant to be an invasion of an attack upon the hideous nature of the unalterable given, 
the fact that you wish to show that underneath this smooth surface there are frightful, inexpressible forces boiling, that, and that speak, nothing can be taken for granted, and that a profound view of life essentially entails the breaking of this mirror-like surface. So, in the case of Romanticism, whichever way you turn, whether it is towards extreme sophistication or some unheard-of simplicity, the result will be the same. Of course, if you think that you actually can become a noble savage, if you think that you actually can transform yourself into a simple native of some unsophisticated country living a very primitive life, then the magic is gone. But none of them did. The whole point of the romantic vision of the noble savage was that he was unattainable. If he was attainable, he was useless. That is certainly true, because then he becomes this awful given, this frightful rule of life which is just as confining, just as disciplining, just as detestable as that which it replaces. And therefore, the unfindable, the unattainable, the infinite and so forth, these are the heart of the matter. Similarly, for example, if you ask what is common to the enchanters and the phantoms and the griffins and the moats and the rattling go- and, and the ghosts and the gibbering bats which surround medieval castles and the, the ghosts of bloody hands and the fearful the dark, the dark voices which reach you from um, um, all, all kinds of mysterious and terrifying ravines and so forth. What is the common to these and, let us say, the large, great spectacle of the peaceful organic Middle Ages with its tournaments, its heralds and its priests? and its royal personages and its aristocracy, quiet, dignified, unalterable, and essentially at peace with itself. If we say, what is common to both these, and both these are, of course, stock in trade, the romantic writers, the answer is, both these things, if placed alongside the daily reality of a beginning, of of an early industrial civilization in Lyon or in Birmingham, um, in some sense, compromise it. That is to say, uh, even Scott... Let us take the extraordinary case of Scott. Here is a writer commonly accounted as romantic. In a sense, you may ask, as indeed a number of Marxist, puzzled Marxist critics do ask, why is Scott a romantic writer? Scott is simply an extremely imaginative and scrupulous writer who managed to describe with considerable fidelity, in a way to affect all kinds of historians, the life of ages preceding his own, say 17th century Scotland, say um, 13th century England, say 15th century France, and so forth. Why is this romantic? Well, by itself it wouldn't be. Naturally, if you are simply a very um, faithful and scrupulous medieval historian simply describing the exact customs of uh, your ancestors, you are simply being a historian in the best classical tradition. And you are simply telling the truth as well as you are able. And this is in no sense a romantic, but on the contrary, a highly reputable academic activity. But Scott was a romantic writer. Why was this? Simply because he liked these forms of life. That is not quite enough. The point is that by painting these very attractive and delightful and hypnotic pictures of these ages, he placed alongside our values, by which I mean the values of 1810, the values of 1820, the values of his own contemporary Scotland or his own contemporary England or France, which were what they were, which were the values of the early 19th century. By the side of these values, whatever they may have been, Protestant, unromantic, industrial, um, at any rate not medieval, by the side of these he placed another set of values, equally good if not better, in competition with these. And this, in some sense, shattered the monopoly, shattered the possibility of the fact that every age is as good as it can be and is indeed advancing to an even better one. If you ask the difference between Macaulay and Scott, you will see it precisely in this. But Macaulay really does believe in progress. He believes everything fits into its own place, and the 17th century was less fortunate than the 18th, and the 18th much less luckier than the 19th. Everything is all right where it is. Everything can be explained in terms of its own causal forces. And we are progressing. Everything fits 
everything advances at a certain cost, it may be, but at the same time, if it were not for human stupidity, human idleness, human perversity, and other dark forces, vested interests, and the like, we should be progressing much faster. This he had in common, to some degree, with James Mill and the utilitarians. He believed in Bacon, he did not believe in mystical religion, that is plain. Now, uh, that is a picture whereby you say there is a reality, it has a certain nature, we study it, we are scientific, we know no more now than we used to know before, they didn't know how to become happy, we know it better. We don't know it perfectly, but we know it better. And our, our descendants will know it better still. Whether we ever get to the goal of a perfectly perfect society, stable, unalterable, with all human, possible and actual human wishes, totally satisfied in a harmonious manner, nobody can tell, but it is not an absurd ideal. This is the jigsaw puzzle solved. If Scott is right, this cannot be true. This is like Herder again. If there are values in the past which are more valuable than those of the present, or at least in competition with them, if there is a magnificent civilization somewhere there in 13th century Britain, or in some remote part of the world, whether in space or in time, which is as attractive, if not more so, than the drab civilization in which we are living, but nevertheless, and that is the important thing, irreproducible, you cannot get to it. It can't be rebuilt. It must remain a dream. It must remain a fantasy. It must remain an object of disappointment if you seek it. If that is so, then nothing will satisfy you. Because two ideals have come into collision and it is impossible to solve the collision. It's impossible to obtain a state of affairs which will contain the best of all these cultures because they are not compatible. And therefore the notion of incompatibility, of plurality of ideals, each of which has its own validity, becomes part of the great battering ram which Romanticism employs against the notion of order, against the notion of progress, against the notion of perfection, classical ideals, the structure of things, and so forth. That is why Scott, surprisingly enough, is correctly called a Romantic writer. No universal pattern. No great style. La ligne vraie, of which Diderot spoke, the real line, the, tr the, the, the underground tradition to, to, to which Mr. T.S. Eliot wished to penetrate. These are the things which are denied and denounced by the entire romantic movement from the beginning to the end, as a fearful delusion only likely to lead to stupidity and shallowness on the part of those who pursue it. This is nature methodized. This is Pope's nature methodized. This is Aristotle. This is what the romantics most bitterly detested. And therefore, one must break up this order. One must break it up by going to the past, or by going within oneself and out of the external world, or one must go and seek to be one with some kind of great spiritual drive which one will never completely identify oneself with, or one must somehow idealize some myth which will never quite come to pass, a Nordic myth, or a Southern myth, or, or a Celtic myth, or some other myth, it doesn't matter which, class, or nation or church, or whatever it may be, which will constantly drive you forward and which will never be fulfilled, and the essence and value of which is that it is strictly unfulfillable, so that if it were fulfilled, it would be worthless. That, I think, is the heart and essence of the Romantic movement, so far as I can see. Will and the life as, not as, as a man, as an activity, as something which cannot be described because it is perpetually creating, you mustn't even say itself, for there is no self. There is only movement. That, I think, is the heart of the Romantic movement. Now, something perhaps ought to be said about its consequences. About its consequences almost in the present day. And it has certainly happened. It has happened to a very vast degree, but of course it was met by certain counterforces which to some extent softened the blow. For there is no doubt, whatever else may be said about Romanticism, that he did put its finger, so to speak, upon something which classicism had left out, upon these unconscious dark forces, upon the fact that the classical description of men, and the description of men by scientists or scientifically influenced men, such as 
Helvetius, let us say, or James Mill, or H.G. Wells, or Shaw, or Russell, is not the whole of man. There were certain aspects of human existence, particularly the inward aspects of human life, which were totally left out and which now distorted the picture in a very violent degree. One of the movements, certainly, which it led to in the present, is the so-called existentialist movement in France, about which I should like to say a few words. For existentialism seems to me certainly the truest heir of Romanticism. Before I speak of it, let me make plain what I think to be certain common qualities. For the great achievement of Romanticism, and that is with which I started my lectures, was that unlike most other great movements in human history, it literally succeeded in transforming certain of our values to a very profound degree. That is what made existentialism possible. Let me first speak about these values, and then I shall attempt to show how it penetrates this modern philosophy, and how it enters into certain other phenomena of modern life as well, such as, for example, the emotive theory of ethics or fascism, each of which it has profoundly influenced. I think I mentioned already, but I think I must now put greater stress on the fact, that a new cluster of virtues appeared with the Romantic movement. Since we are wills, and since we are must be free in the Kantian or Fichtean sense, Motive counts more than consequence. For consequences cannot be controlled, but motives can. Since we must be free, and since we must be ourselves to the fullest possible degree, the great virtue, the greatest virtue of all in a sense, is what existentialists call authenticity, and what the Romantics called sincerity. Now, as I tried to say before, this is new. I don't believe that in the 17th century, as I think I said to you, if you had a, a religious uh, conflict between, say, a Protestant and a Catholic, it would have been possible for the Catholic to say, the Protestant is a damnable heretic and leads souls to perdition, but the fact that he is sincere raises him in my estimation. The fact that he is sincere, that he is prepared to lay down his life for the nonsense in which he believes, is a morally noble fact. And that anyone, so to speak, who is sufficiently a man of integrity, anyone who is prepared to sacrifice himself upon any altar, no matter what, has a moral personality which is worthy of respect, no matter how detestable or how false the ideals to which he bows his knee. The notion of idealism, as I say, is new. Idealism means that you respect people for the fact that they are prepared to give up health, wealth, popularity, power, all kinds of desirable things which their emotions demand, which is that which they can't control themselves, what Kant calls the external factors, emotions which are themselves part of the psychological or physical world, that people are prepared to lay that aside for the sake of something with which they truly identify themselves, no matter what. And the notion that idealism is a good thing and realism a bad one. And I think I said to you before, if I say I am something of a realist, you now mean I am about to tell a lie or do something peculiarly shabby. That sense of realism is the result of the romantic movement. Namely, that sincerity becomes a virtue in itself. And, of, while it's, and, and this, I think, is so to speak, at the heart of the whole thing. The fact that there is admiration from the 1820s onwards for minorities as such, for defiance as such, for um, failure as being nobler in certain respects than success, for every kind of opposition to reality, for, so to speak, in, what is called taking up positions on principle where the principle may itself be absurd, that this in some way is not regarded with the kind of contempt with which you regard, say, a man who says twice two is seven, which is also a principle but which nevertheless you know to be the assertion of something false, is significant. Because what Romanticism did was to undermine the notion that in matters of value, 
politics, morals, aesthetics, there are such things as objective criteria which operate between human beings such that anyone who doesn't use these criteria is simply either a liar or a madman, which is true, say, of mathematics or of physics. And this division between where objective truth obtains, say mathematics, say physics, say certain regions of common sense, and where objective truth has been compromised, say ethics, say aesthetics and so forth, that, I think, is new. And that, I think, has created a new attitude to life. Whether good or bad, I will not volunteer to say. That is to say, if you ask yourself, for example, um, what kind of moral um, evaluation you would give to certain historical uh, personages, I don't know. Let us say uh, you compare um, um, utilitarian, persons who, utilitarian figures who conferred benefits on mankind, say, Frederick the Great, or, 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 or Kemal Pasha, let us say, whom, about whom you might think that their private characters were not irreproachable, about whom you might say that they were perhaps, um, in certain respects, hard-hearted, or brutal, or cruel, or were not at all free from certain um, impulses which, on the whole, um, human beings disapprove of. At the same time, there is no doubt they improved the lives of their peoples, they were competent, they were efficient, they raised the level of life, they created organi great organizations which have lasted, and they have been the source of a great deal of satisfaction, strength, and happiness to a large number of persons. On the one hand, these. And if, on the other hand, you compare them with, say, someone who obviously caused suffering, John of Leiden, who caused cannibalism to occur in the city of Münster, who caused a large number of people to be slaughtered for the sake of his own apocalyptic religion, Torquemada, who, let us say, destroyed a very large number of persons whom today we should consider innocent for the sake of ourselves, with the purest possible motive. Supposing you ask yourself which of these persons you rate higher, in the 18th century there would have been no doubt. Frederick the Great clearly comes above uh, a religious madman. Today, people would suffer from certain doubts. They would suffer from certain doubts because they think that idealism, sincerity, dedication, purity of heart, purity of mind, are qualities preferable to uh, corruption, wickedness, calculation, egoism, mendacity, the desire to exploit other people for their own benefit, which these great state founders undoubtedly were guilty of. And therefore, we are in some sense children of both worlds. The peculiar, our peculiar position is that we are heirs to Romanticism because Romanticism broke that great single mold in which humanity, in one way or another, had marched hitherto, the philosophy of Perennis. We are in some sense products of certain doubts. We can't quite tell. We give so, much, so many marks for consequence, so many marks for motive. And we oscillate between the two. If it goes too far, if someone is a, is a Hitler, then we don't think that his sincerity is a necessary saving quality, although in the 30s it was much argued in his favour. At the same time, but this, he must go very far indeed and flout values which are of an extremely universal kind. So that in some sense, we are still members of some kind of unified tradition. But the field within which we now oscillate freely, the amount of allowance we make is far, far greater than it has ever been before. And for this, the Romantic movement is to a great degree responsible, inasmuch as it preached the incompatibility of ideals, the importance of motive, the importance of character, or at any rate of, of so to speak, of, of purpose, over consequence, over efficiency, over effect, over happiness, success, and um, position in the world. When Hölderlin said, happiness, happiness is not an ideal, happiness is tepid water on the tongue. When Nietzsche said, man does not desire happiness, only the Englishman does. This was a very, this was a sentiment which on the whole would not have been laughed at in the 17th or 18th centuries. At least, I think not. And I think this is perhaps the direct product of the um, Romantic movement. Now, as to existentialism. The central sermon of existentialism is essentially a romantic one, namely that 
um, there is in the world nothing to lean on. If you try and explain your conduct and you say, simply for tomorrow, it's too strong for me, emotion overcame me, or there are certain principles of an objective kind which I, although I hate it, I must subserve, or I have received orders from an institution which is eternal or divine, or which is of an objectively valid character, and although I may not like it, it has given the order, it being laws of economics, it being um, the Ministry of the Interior, it being whatever it may be. It has given the orders, and it is, has a right to my validity. Once you begin doing this, you are simply using alibis. You are simply pretending that you are not deciding, when in fact you have decided, but don't care to face the consequences of the fact that it is you who have decided. Even when you say, I am partially unconscious, I am the product of unconscious forces, I cannot help it, I have a complex. It is not my fault, I am driven. It is because my father was unkind to my mother that I am today the monster that I am. This is, broadly speaking, and I think he's probably right about this, is broadly speaking an attempt to carry favor or to obtain sympathy by transferring the weight of responsibility for your acts, in which you are entirely free, to something objective. It doesn't matter whether it's a political organization or a psychological doctrine. But somewhere you are trying to shift responsibility from your shoulders because, of course, it is you who decide it. Once you say you are a monster, and don't mind being a monster, evidently, it's a kind of complacent acceptance of something which you know to be evil, but which, of which you take the curse, of, of which you take a curse by saying, not I, society is responsible. We're all determined. We cannot help it. There is a causality which pervades the world, and I am um, merely uh, the instrument of powerful forces which I can no more prevent uh, from making me evil as it can prevent from making you good. You are not to be congratulated for being good, nor am I condemned for being evil. Neither of us can help our fate. We are simply fragments of an enormous causal process. Sartre, I think with a certain justice, echoes the views of Fichte, echoes the views of Kant, which is where it all comes from, ultimately, in saying that this is, in some sense, either self-deception or deliberate deception of others. And the existentialists, of course, go further than this. They say that the very notion of a metaphysical structure of the universe, theology or metaphysics, they attempt to say that certain things have essences, which merely means things are what they are of necessity. We arrive in a world which has a certain structure which cannot be altered. Physical structure, chemical structure, social structure, psychological structure, and metaphysical and theological structure, with God at the head of this great creation and the amoeba below, or whatever it is you may believe in, these are nothing but pathetic attempts on the part of human beings to make themselves at home in the world by breeding enormous cozy fantasies, so that the world shall be such that they shall be able to fit into it more comfortably and shall not have to face the appalling prospect of total responsibility for all their acts upon their own shoulders. And when they give motives for doing what they do, when they say, I've done this because of that, because in order to pursue this, and you say, but why should you pursue this particular end? And you say, because it is objectively right. That, too, for the existentialists, is again an attempt to transfer responsibility of what should be a free choice in a vacuum onto something which is not yours, which is objective. Natural law, the sayings of the sages, the pronouncements of sacred books, the pronouncement of scientists in the laboratory, what psychologists and sociologists say, what politicians or economists declare, not I, they. And this is regarded as, on the whole, an attempt to shuffle off responsibility and to blind oneself, and blind oneself unnecessarily, to the fact that the universe is, in fact, a kind of void. That is what is meant by calling it absurd. A kind of void in which you and you alone exist, and you make whatever there is to make, and you are responsible for making what you make, and you cannot plead extenuation all excuses are false, and all explanations are explaining the way. And th this might as well be faced by a man who is brave enough and tragic enough to face reality as he should. This is the stoic sermon of existentialism, and it derives directly from, um, um, from romanticism. 
Some romantics, of course, went too far, by which I mean this. Let me give you the extraordinary example of Stirner, which I think will may perhaps lead us to see what it is in the end that is valuable in romanticism, even for us now. Stirner was a German Hegelian schoolmaster who argued quite correctly as follows. The romantics are quite right in supposing that when we think that institutions are eternal, this is a mistake. Institutions are created freely by human beings for the benefit of other human beings and in time become worn out. And therefore, by looking at them from the point of view of the present, we see they are worn out, we must abolish them and have new institutions freely arrived at by our own indomitable will. This is not merely true of political institutions, economic institutions, or other public institutions. It's equally true of doctrines. Doctrines can also be a most terrible weight upon us. Fearful chains and tyrannies which yoke us down to all kinds of views which the present or our own wills no longer desiderate. But if it is true, and therefore theories too must be blown up. Any kind of general theory, say Hegel, say Marx, is itself a ghastly form of despotism, which claims to have some kind of objective validity beyond the choice of individual men. This cannot be right, for it confines us and cribs us and limits our free activity. But if this is true about doctrines, it will be equally true of all general propositions. But if it is true of all general propositions, then, and this is the last step of all, which some romantics certainly talk, it's true of all words. Because all words are general. They all classify. If I use the word yellow, I want to mean by it what I meant by it yesterday and what you will mean by it tomorrow. And this, of course, is a terrible yoke. This is a fearful despotism. Why should the word yellow mean the same thing now and tomorrow? Why can't I alter it? Why should twice two always make four? Why should words be uniform? Why can't I make up my own universe each time that I begin? But, of course, if I do that, then if there is no systematic symbolism, I can't think. And if I can't think, I go mad. And, to, to do him justice, Stirner did duly go mad. And, and ended his life very honorably and very consistently in a lunatic asylum. It was a perfectly peaceful, harmless lunatic somewhere in the middle 60s. But something of the sort was also boiling in the mind of Nietzsche, who was a far superior thinker, but who in certain respects resembles Stirner. And from this, I think, a moral may be drawn, namely, that so long as we live in society, we, we communicate. Those with whom we, if we did not communicate, we should hardly be men. Among the definitions of what we mean by human being is someone who understands at any rate a portion of what we say to him. To this degree, then, there must be some degree of common, uh, common values, common language, common communication, and some degree of common values. Otherwise, there will be no intelligibility between human beings. But a human being who cannot understand what any other human being says is scarcely a human being. He is on the whole pronounced abnormal. To the extent to which there is normality there is, and there is communication, there are common values. To the extent to which there are common values, it is impossible to say, everything must be created by, by me. If I find something given, smash it. If I find something structured, destroy it, in order to give free play to my unbridled imagination. And to this extent, romanticism, if it's driven to its logical conclusion, does certainly end in some kind of lunacy. In a certain sense, fascism too is an inheritor of romanticism, and that is an inheritor not because it is irrational, plenty of movements have been that, or because it believes in elites, plenty of movements have been that. The reason why fascism owes something to romanticism is again because of this notion of the unpredictable will, either of a man or of a group, which forges forward in some impossible to organize, impossible to predict, impossible to rationalize fashion. That is the whole uh, heart, to speak, in a certain sense, of fascism. That is the whole heart. The whole heart of fascism was what the leader will say tomorrow, how the spirit will move us, where we shall go, what we shall do, that cannot be foretold. The hysterical element, the hysterical self-assertion, 
and the nihilistic destruction of existing institutions because they can find the un, 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 unlimited will, which is the only thing which counts for human beings. The superior person who crushes the inferior because his will is stronger, that is a direct inheritance. In an extremely distorted and garbled form, no doubt, still an inheritance from these romantics of whom I have been speaking. And this certainly has played an extremely powerful part in our lives. The whole thing, indeed, is an attempt to impose an aesthetic model upon reality, to say everything should obey the rules of art. If you are an artist, then perhaps some of these propositions which I've tried to utter during the last six lectures have a great deal of validity. The attempt to convert life into art presupposes that human beings are stuff, that presupposes they are simply, in some sense, material, even if paints or sounds are material. And to the degree to which this is not true, to the degree to which human beings in order to communicate with each other, are forced to recognize certain common values, are forced to recognize certain common facts, are forced to live in a common world, to the extent to which not everything which science says is, is, is nonsense, not everything which common sense declares is untrue, because to say that is in itself a self-contradictory and absurd proposition. To this extent, romanticism in its full form, and even its offshoots in the form of both existentialism and the fascism, seem to me to be fallacious. Let me end on one further note. What May we, can, can be said we owe to Romanticism. Well, we owe a great deal to it. We owe the notion of the freedom of the artist and the fact that he, neither he nor human beings in general can be explained by oversimplified views such as were prevalent in the 18th century and such as are still enunciated by over-rational and over-scientific analysts of either human beings or groups. We owe him, I think we owe to Romanticism also the notion that the, a unified answer to human affairs is likely to be ruinous. That if human beings, if you really believe that there is one single solution to all human ills, and this solution you must impose at no matter what cost, you are likely to be, become a violent and despotic tyrant in the name of your solution because your desire to remove all obstacles to it will end by destroying those creatures for whose benefit you, uh, uh, you offer the solution. The notion that there are many values, that they are incompatible, the whole notion of plurality, the whole notion of inexhaustibility, the whole notion of the, so to speak, in some sense, imperfection of all human answers and arrangements, the notion that no single answer which claims to be perfect and true, whether in art or in life, can in principle be perfect or true, that, I think, we certainly owe to the Romantics. And so, a rather peculiar situation has arisen. Here are the Romantics whose chief burden is to destroy ordinary tolerant life, to destroy philistinism, to destroy common sense, to destroy peaceful avocations of men, to raise everybody to some passionate level of self-expressive experience of such a kind as perhaps only divinities in the older um, uh, works of man were supposed to um, exercise. This is the ostensible um, uh, sermon, the ostensible purpose of Romanticism, whether among the Germans of whom I speak, or in Byron, or among the French, or whoever it may be. This is, and yet, as a result of making clear the existence of plurality of values by the result of driving wedges into the notion of the classical ideal, of the single answer to all questions, of the rationalizability of everything, of the answerability of all questions, of the whole jigsaw puzzle conception of life. By doing this, they have, as it were, put forward prominently and laid emphasis upon the incompatibility of human ideals. And if these ideals are incompatible, then human beings sooner or later realize that they must make do, they must make compromises, because if they seek to destroy others, others will seek to destroy them. With the result that as a result of this passionate, fanatical, half-mad doctrine, we have appreciation of the necessity of tolerating others, the necessity of preserving an imperfect equilibrium in human affairs, 
the impossibility of driving human beings so far into the pen which we have created for them or into the single solution which possesses us that they will ultimately revolt against us or at any rate be crushed by it. So the result of Romanticism is liberalism, toleration, decency and the appreciation of the imperfections of life. Uh, some degree of increased, if you like, rational self-understanding. This certainly was very, very far from the intentions of Romanticism. But at the same time, so far as Romantic doctrine is true, they are the persons who most strongly emphasize the unpredictability of all human activities. And in their own particular case, they are hoisted their own petard. Aiming at one thing, they produced, fortunately for us all, almost the exact opposite. Thank you very much. I'm most grateful to you for having had the patience to listen to these six long lectures.